bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. We are managing to pull ourselves together after laughing, but also using a lot of swear words to talk about (laughs) our old friends and noted cosplayer Malcolm Nance, who announced he has set a course for home after uh, 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 clearly (sighs) at least a couple of times putting on what appears to be a military uniform. Yes. In Is fact, it- I pointed out in in a piece that I wrote about Malcolm and what an utter and complete phony he is, mm-hmm. uh, that while he's holding this M4 uh, military rifle, there's no magazine in it. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have any bullets. Yeah. You know, he's... It, he's it's all about the show. It's all about the pictures yes. with Malcolm. And I wrote about when I wrote about him, I included quotes from former colleagues of his in the Navy when he was a cryptologist. Mm-hmm. And they said that they gave him a wide berth because he was a phony. He either made up or exaggerated many of his exploits Him and then would double down and want to fight you over it. Mm. So, I mean, he's surely he's not making up or exaggerating any of his exploits uh, defending Ukraine. And now he's coming uh, home to, as he puts it in all caps on his Twitter, defend America because uh, he's got a book tour about his uh, take on Trump, Trump thought, yeah, Trump, Trump mindset. That's, that's he's here to grand. tell you all about it. So that's cool. Can't great. wait for him to come back. John and I are making plans to go to his book tour and get some signed <laughs> copies of what I'm sure is a just a oh, really boy. meaningful document. Of our times. Uh, I mean, we could talk about Malcolm Nance for the next two hours, but I guess we won't. Uh, We have a report that I'm excited to get into uh, from a few days ago. This is out of The Intercept, showing that U.S. proxy conflicts are underway in a lot more of the world than we have previously admitted. Right. Yeah. So th- these are yeah. some uh, documents they've gotten showing that uh, we're we're involved in more places than we've we've copped to. So we're going to get into yes. that and talk about what the implications of that are. Uh, I have some ideas. And there are implications. This is something that's been going on for a long time and almost nobody knows about it. Yeah. Yeah. Because we have a press corps that we've talked about yesterday is pretty happy yeah. to take pretty yeah. happy to take their word for it. Yeah. And then when just, something comes out that doesn't you know fit the mold. It mm-hmm. doesn't ever seem to break it. You know what I mean? Like That's right. you, every single thing is an aberration. Every right. civilian death is an aberration and not a, a result of a, you know, I won't even call it mm-hmm. a systemic failure because I don't think that's what it is, right? I agree. And so every every proxy war is like, oh, yeah, just that one time, guys. Right. Come on. Do you think we're, like, engaged in this on no. a worldwide scale to this defend a, our economic position? It's at the a top? permanent policy. Silly. Yeah. yeah so we're going to talk about that. Um, Not unrelated, we are going to talk about the heads of the domestic intelligence programs of the United States and the UK warning about Chinese spying. Mm -hmm. They're taking our uh, intellectual property, guys. That's what that's what we're supposed to be worried about. And, you know, I want to add something about that too. Christopher Wray, the director of the FBI, Mm -hmm. when he gave this uh, whatever it was, press conference, uh, statement, whatever it was Mm -hmm. with the head of the British MI5, the domestic intelligence service in the UK, Um, he hinted that the Chinese are trying to insulate themselves from what would be international sanctions imposed when they invade Taiwan. Okay. Well, I want to know, is he saying the Chinese are preparing to invade Taiwan? 
Yeah. What does he base that on? Yeah. Where, what's the intelligence? Yeah. You can't just throw a grenade into the middle of the room and expect everybody just to nod and take your word for it. I mean, Joe Biden does it a lot. But you got to lay yeah. out the, the mm-hmm. proof. I want to hear the proof. Mm-hmm. We want the proof here on Political Misfits. We're going to talk about that. We are going to talk about new sanctions on Iran. John, just yesterday we were saying diplomacy. Maybe not really the strong suit of this administration. And Iran is a, a really good case in point. Although, you know, a, as they were coming into power, there were voices uh, saying this administration, Tony Blinken in particular, they have no intention mm-hmm. of, of reentering into any kind of uh, agreement with Iran. And so this will That's all be right. window dressing. And these people might have been right. Yeah. We are going to talk about oil profits exploding. Uh, We're going to talk about what's coming next for inflation in the United States. Of course, we are going to talk about Boris Johnson (laughs) on his way out at last, although not out yet. Not quite. And it is kind of funny that he said, sure, no, totally. I'm ready to go, guys, just as soon as you figure out who's going to be boss after me. Right. Which is maybe a more difficult problem than people would like it to be. Yeah. You know, our our colleague um, uh, Wilmer Leon said when he came in this morning that that the uh, the Brits, the, the Tory party in the UK doesn't have a deep bench. So who's it going to be? Put me in, coach. Yeah. <laughs> and there are a dozen different people saying that right yes. now. So we'll see. We'll see who ends up on top in that scrum. Uh, France taking some very interesting steps on energy, which we're going to talk about uh, in the second hour of the show. And uh, after a long legal battle, Ukraine's Communist Party has finally been banned by the courts. And you have at least one complaint to the European uh, Parliament as a result of people going, is this a kind of, you know, seven years ago, the initial ban of this party uh, was seen by Amnesty International, among others, to be, you know, stifling Mm -hmm. of dissent and a move backward when it comes to civil liberties in in Ukraine. I'm wondering what kind of attention the final court decision from this week is going to get. Yes. Maybe not a whole lot. I would agree. Um, The other uh, news that came out just yesterday as we were leaving was this new report on the Uvalde school shooting. This was issued by Texas University's Advanced Law Enforcement Rapid Response Training Program, which I guess is a sort of nationally uh, has a a national profile as a training program for officers responding to these kinds of incidents. It's issued a 26 page report on the performance of police officers at the shooting and every analysis of this tragedy mm-hmm. just makes the responders look worse. There's no upside to this. If you are a member of the Uvalde police department or no. the Uvalde Uvalde school district police department. No, this just really spreads the blame around yeah. a little bit. Um, some big takeaways were that officers missed chances to slow the gunman down before he got into the building. Mm-hmm. I think as we've already talked about, some doors were not locked that are supposed to be locked. Uh, it also notes that a police officer armed with a rifle watched the gunman walk toward the campus, but he didn't fire. He was waiting for uh, uh, permission Permission. from a supervisor. The report found that he had ample cause to use deadly force and lays that out. So even if, you know, whatever happened, whether the supervisor didn't hear the request or whatever, this officer didn't actually need to wait. He could have he could have uh, shot him on his way. This other one missed opportunity to stop the gunman before he entered the school is to just uh, I can't come up with a better word than farcical. Uh, one of the first responding officers comes peeling up and drives through the school parking lot on the west side at a high rate of speed. The suspect was in the parking lot, but the officer didn't see him. 
because he was yeah. fast and furious style peeling into the school. And the report finds if he had driven more slowly or if he'd parked his car at the edge <sighs> of school property and approached on foot, he might have seen him, might have been able to engage him before he entered the building. Oh, my God. Right. I mean, that kind of cowboy yeah. garbage. I mean, I wasn't there. I'm I'm. Making, I'm, I'm inferring here, which I feel justified in doing, having seen but, cops. But you know <laughs> what? Though, no, you're, you're actually, you're, you're right. Mm. Uh, I, I went through the same kind of of training that a lot of these, you know, cops go through, or the FBI, or you know, and you're trained for this kind of an event, mm-hmm. and you're trained to rely on your wits to assess the situation as quickly as possible and to react. Yeah. Not to just stand there and say, oh, maybe I had to call my boss. Oh, wait a minute. What's that I hear? Oh, that guy went inside and he's shooting children. Yeah. Maybe I ought to go back to my car and wait to hear what's on the radio. Yeah. No, no, no. That's not in anybody's training. Yeah. Your no, training is to respond. There's more, John. I mean, there's also the, the, the report also notes that at one point officers had uh, had little groups at either ends of a hallway. Uh inside they're inside the classroom uh, door opens onto this hallway there are officers on either end so if he had come out of the classroom they just would have shot each other yeah great of course stuff the Um, circular firing squad right and uh but the the, a serious problem also seems to have been that initial responding officers quote lost momentum so you have officers Inside the school building, outside the classroom, within five or six minutes after the shooter has gone into the class, into the school mm-hmm. and, and begun firing. Right. So this is very fast. They approach the doors. The suspect starts shooting at them. Both of these teams of officers on the inside then retreat from the doors, fall back without ever having touched either of the doors, mm-hmm. which now uh, are believed to have been unlock, unlocked. And they fell back. And then they just chilled. For more than an hour. And the report says, look, if you didn't want to go through the door, you could have tried windows. You could have tried blasting through sheetrock. You could have done several of these things at once to distract the shooter. But they waited. And the report, uh, there are some damning um, lines that I just wanted to, to say. It notes that officers had weapons, including rifles, body armor, which may or may not have been rated to stop rifle rounds, training and backup. The victims in the classroom had none of those things. Which is a uh-huh. pretty yep. damning line, I think. Um, and it also notes that when officers entered the classroom at 12.50 p.m., more than an hour after the shooting began, they were no better equipped to confront the gunman than they had been up to that point. Mm-hmm. Which is a little confusing to me because there is a timeline of, of equipment arriving, right? But yes. I think all of the... I, so I don't know if that means they didn't actually use it or that they had all the stuff that they needed. Uh, they, had, they had had most of it for more than an hour. Mm-hmm. So they didn't, nothing came along Mm -hmm. that made, it it says basically nothing came along that made them any more capable of bursting through that door or made it any more urgent to burst through that door than it had been an hour before. And so it just is all sort of inexplicable. It also concludes that while they don't have definitive information at this point, it's possible that some of the people who died in this tragedy could have been saved if they had gotten medical care sooner. Right. Right. It is just awful. Um, And a a significant aspect of this report is that while it notes that there was no effective incident command ever established, uh, this, of course, points back to the school district police chief, Pete Arredondo. uh, It faults all of the officers who were involved in the response. You know, all of them. Yeah. 
Like it can't, you know, be, just because you don't have an effective command doesn't mean that you don't have responsibility. You are the officer standing there in front of that classroom That's door, right. dropping back. And you're trained. Yeah. Yeah. So you have to respond. Yeah. So another, I mean, no good news coming out of this. And now um, the Uvalde County Sheriff has refused to testify to a Texas House Legislative Committee that's investigating the shooting. And yesterday they sent him a notice of deposition. Mm -hmm. So I am guessing the sheriff is acting on the advice of his lawyers. (laughs) Uh, You have to imagine there are going to be lawsuits coming. There's been no analysis of this that makes the police look competent in any way. No, none. Yeah. None. Unbelievable. We should also say that uh, there has been a development in the Brittany Griner situation in Russia just a couple of hours ago. She changed her plea from not guilty to guilty. We don't know why. Mm -hmm. We don't have any inside information. It may be that a settlement has been negotiated. It may be that she just realizes that they've got her. Mm-hmm. And so she might as well plead guilty and throw herself on the mercy of the court. We just simply don't know. We're hoping for the best for her and for her family. And we'll have more uh, news on the situation yep. as we learn it. And what else is going on? Um, oh, actually, there was kind of a funny thing. It's well, it's funny to me. But Trevor Reed oh, yeah. is is this other American uh, who spent three years in jail in Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, his story is not as compelling as Brittany Griner's. No, it's a little embarrassing. It's a little embarrassing. Uh, to use Vladimir Putin's uh, description, the guy went out, he got S-faced, yeah. uh, trashed, drunk, and um, when they put him in the police car, I don't know, take him home, take him to the uh, police station, take mm-hmm. him to the hospital. We don't know. He tried to wrest control of the police car from the policeman. He was charged with uh, assaulting Endangering a the police life of an officer, officer or something. Right. Yeah. And got like 10 a, years, a, nine a years. draconian sentence yeah, to, draconian. Be, to be like ridiculous it, it for was. like, you know, what is obviously a case of being drunk and disorderly. Yeah. And he was released after three years. Mm-hmm. The Biden administration was successful in getting him out. And uh, now his family issued an angry statement uh, yesterday because Joe Biden did call Brittany Griner's wife to express concern and to say, you know, we're working as hard as we can. Right. We're doing what we can. And now Trevor Reed's family is saying, well, he never called us. How come he didn't call us? Well, you're, maybe because your son is just a, just an embarrassment. I don't know, man. <laughs> like sometimes, you know, it is one thing to be, you know, again, uh, I don't think there is any suggestion that Brittany Griner was was somehow uh, set up, right? Yes. So she no, she broke a law that we have right. already said is a stupid law with a stupid punishment, right? right. No, it, marijuana shouldn't be illegal. That's no. that's just dumb. But it is a law on the books. Um, but you know, it is a stupid law with with a stupid punishment. Uh, you you know, no country's really going to like let you assault him. You know what I mean? Like no, no one's going to come out with the flags no. if you get, get drunk and like throw a haymaker at a, right. at a cop or something right. like that's just, Hey man, we're yeah. gonna, if that's the level of that. control you have over yourself, I think you got to take your lumps. <laughs> well, yeah. we are going to uh, go to a short break. We've got a terrific show today. We have Aaron good. Who's coming up in just a minute. Aaron's always terrific. Steve Grumbine, Tony Alexiu is going to talk about foreign affairs and Dr. Kenneth Surin's going to set us straight on what's happening in the UK right now. You're listening to political misfits on radio Sputnik. Stay tuned. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou, here with Michelle Witte. The Intercept reported this week that U.S. Special Operations Forces are involved in low-profile proxy wars on a far greater scale than previously known. As recently as 2020, the Pentagon was involved in as many as 20 secret wars in the Middle East, Africa, and the Asia-Pacific regions. Called 127E programs, they are usually couched as counterterrorism operations, and we know thanks to recently declassified documents that in just the past few years, such operations have taken place in Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Yemen, and Somalia, in addition to many other places. Earlier reporting by The Intercept found that larger-scale operations were taking place in countries across the Sahel in Africa. We're joined by Aaron Good. Aaron is a political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon. He's the author of American Exception, Empire and the Deep State, published by Skyhorse. Welcome back, Aaron. Hey, John. Great to be here. Great to have you. Man, these secret uh, military operations certainly are nothing new. The U.S. carried out a secret war over the course of years in Laos, in Cambodia, in the 60s and 70s. There were secret operations in the Philippines in the 70s and the 80s, ostensibly against communists and then later against Islamic extremists. Uh, There were secret operations in Latin America in that same period. We all know about Somalia in the 1990s. Why is this latest revelation even newsworthy? Is it because there are so many different operations going on and nobody really seems to be focused on them? Yeah, it's a good question as to why this appears in The Intercept uh, right now in the summer of 2022. I tend to think that The Intercept I think it was Ken Silverstein. He yes. used to be the Harper's Washington editor, and he wrote a halfway satirical, but not really, uh, post at his website, uh, is saying, "Is the Intercept an intelligence operation?" <laughs> and uh, I think that when you look at the founder and all the money that he got, sort of from monopoly, you know, corporate power, I think he's related to the PayPal people, right? Right. And, uh, he's been involved in funding operations in Ukraine and so on. So he's like essentially. Uh, an oligarch who is connected to the deep state of the United States. And he also, by uh, hiring um, Glenn Greenwald and mm-hmm. providing a haven for the Snowden leaks, he seeked, he basically resecured them and we don't have access to them anymore. Yes. So that was an interesting trick. So this is, the, I think that anything they report has to be seen in that light. And, uh, you know, this is like this whole genre of kind of limited hangout journalism. And I think, you know, why are we hearing about this now? I think in part to help to, you know, give keep up that pretense that we have some kind of press that actually provides oversight and serves a public service by informing us about what the government is doing. But uh, a lot of the stuff in the article is, you know, kind of strange because they talk about how, like, this this might be a, a violation of the Constitution. Well, <laughs> that's uh, that's ridiculous to even say that unless you're going to point out that the military, the national security state, violates the Constitution as a matter of course on a daily basis and yeah. that uh, we need to recognize the implications of that fact if we want to understand the kind of system we live under. Uh, and as you say, these secret wars are not new. I imagine that what get, got reported here, in fact, I'm, it's a virtual certainty that what they reported in this article is still worth, you know, it's worth looking at and thinking about. 
uh, in terms of like adding it to what we what has actually been disclosed by the, the, the press. But these things go on all the time, and uh, I bet it's the tip of the iceberg. I've even yeah. wondered recently, uh, you know, in recent months, they were writing about a really bizarre number of deaths at Fort Bragg. Right. And I, I posted on Twitter or somewhere else that I would guess that uh, one educated guess would be that these people were actually dying in missions that the military has to deny. And so it's they're sent wherever because uh, Fort Bragg is the headquarters of the special, you know, JSOC and all that, as right. I understand it. So special forces are all headquartered there. And so when they're sent out on these kind of operations, if they get killed, they don't want to say, oh, they got killed in this country we're not supposed to be in. Even. Uh, instead, they'll say they died in a training accident or or I don't even know what got run over by a tank on base or who knows. But uh, they got to explain away all these deaths and it's kind of getting more out of hand. So maybe that's a function of how many of these kind of missions mm-hmm. there are going on right mm-hmm. now. Can I also ask, Aaron, about like, you know, the implications of reporting these things is always a bug, never a feature, right? Always a bug, never a feature. And if yes. you report them like that, then uh, you don't have to consider the role of these operations in um, sort of our whole justification for our foreign policy, right? Because the U.S. likes to pretend that, you know, it's just it's just that our political economy over time wins at the ballot box, right? And that around the world, people want capitalism and American-style democracy. And if we admitted that, in fact, what we are doing is heavily arming the enemies of our enemies— all over the world, it really undercuts the justification that we have used for all of our foreign adventures for the last, I mean, 30 years, I would say at least, but longer. And so again, you know, I think it is important to talk about these things, um, but I think you're correct in that the analysis stops at each individual FOIA uh, fulfillment. You're you know what I mean? Right. And you never say, okay, well, let's look at this as a whole and look at our sort of uh, our American mythology as a whole and our justification for our role in the world as a whole. And if it's a result of just uh, basically military conquest, mm-hmm. it makes it a lot less justifiable. Right. And the military conquest is one serious part of it, but a lot of it is financial as well. I mean, the military is there to sort of complement the structural. Uh, arrangement that uh, is really dominated by finance and allows for finance to, uh, you know, capital to enter and and lead countries, you know, at its whim and have the most favorable, you know, uh, uh, conditions for it itself. So that uh, this is, you know, it is, there is a heavy, heavy military component and a paramilitary or covert military uh, component to all this, because if you really did have democracy in the U.S. and in other countries, you would have more countries with policies that uh, serve the interests of their own populations, including yeah. the U.S. population. And so you have covert violence deployed internationally and probably domestically uh, by the United States, you know, national security state. And uh, in other for other countries, you know, if they don't elect the right people and so on, then they get the uh, they get the covert violence typically so that the U.S. can pretend to still uh, via, you know, uphold the liberal order and the rule of law and so on, while having a sort of covert violence to, as a veto power to get to get what they want uh, as often as they can. One of the things that I learned, Aaron, at the CIA was that it's always better to ask for forgiveness than it is to ask for permission. 
Um, that's why there is so little oversight at the CIA. But is oversight really even possible? In this case that we're talking about, the Pentagon has more than 2 million employees, including active duty military, right? The, uh, the oversight committees on uh, Capitol Hill, the, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, they have fewer than, than between them, three or four dozen employees. Is it even possible to maintain a hold over everything that the Pentagon does? Um, I don't really think so. I, I, I would have the oversight of the, the Pentagon and also the intelligence community, because, you know, um, as you have, have suggested elsewhere, there's uh, a lot of coordination between these entities, and that's been going on for a while. There's the even uh, examples Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty wrote about this in the secret team back in the 1970s that one of his jobs was to put people into uh, military positions to give them military ranks coming from the CIA. So CIA officers could be given a high rank uh, just automatically, uh, and they would be posing as military officers when they really were uh, agency officers. And um, I mean, sometimes they would have to like in their there were different agreements that tried to sort of keep a handle on this, but I don't think they really. They really worked, wow. but but this it is also sprawling and massive that it is difficult to control. Under Bill Clinton, you had uh, in his own government a kind of government in exile with Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld, um, who were in the 1990s. They were both out of government, working mm-hmm. in for private corporations, but they also served on this uh, continuity of government uh, organization right. that was working on doomsday emergency plans that would supersede the Constitution. And uh, as fate would have it, those uh, continuity government plans got implemented on 9-11. And uh, we still don't, we're under a state of emergency ever since that day that has never been lifted. And we're not even allowed to know the actual, um, you know, statutory Mm -hmm. limitations or contingencies spelled out by this state of emergency that we've been under since since 9-11. And uh, so it's, it's, there are, uh, and that's just one of the reasons that it's very difficult to know what's what's going on, the sort of state of emergency and state secrecy. And the fact that state secrecy is nested in opaque, uh, non-democratically elected, you know, uh, organizations where the top officials are not democratically elected. So in theory, right. the president might have control over the bureaucracy, but in reality, the, they have uh, access to secrets themselves that they do not give out willingly, even to presidents. Uh, as Jefferson Morley wrote about in his book, and I included the same episode in my book as well, um, Jefferson Morley wrote about it in Scorpion's Dance, and I write about it in American Exception. Mm-hmm. But Richard Nixon uh, talked to Richard Helms in 1971 and was specifically asking him to get any information he could about the who shot Jack angle is what right. he said, which was a reference to who killed John Kennedy. And he's arguing with Helms. And if you see the transcript, he's basically saying, you know, the, uh, the presidency, we can't really have like one administration doing something. And then the next one doesn't even know what happened. Right. You, you really should give me these secrets, <laughs> but Helms never does. No. And, and, you know, eventually Nixon goes down and uh, that, that's, Really, that really says a lot about the way that this stuff uh, that this stuff plays out. You can't really provide; even the president can't provide oversight. So, no. of course, senators can't. No way. We shouldn't expect them to unless we have major reforms to the system, and that is the conversation we should be having, uh, but won't be. The documents that the Intercept was able to acquire for this article came from DOD, 
And the interviews that they did for the article were of current and former DOD employees. But how much do you think this program is really the CIA or other members of the intelligence community? That line between CIA and DOD special operations is very, very fuzzy. And it became even fuzzier after 9-11. Should we really be talking about intelligence oversight here rather than military oversight? Right. That's just it. I think it needs to be there needs to be some kind of uh, if if we were serious about having uh, democratic checks over authoritarian kind of dictatorial state uh, security services, then you would want to set up uh, within democratically elected institutions like Congress the ability to conduct oversight over all of the government's security activities by and large. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. amount of things that there's a legitimate reason to keep secret from, say, congressmen, uh, they, that would have to be very, very small in reality. But I think for the sake of expediency, that is a very large amount of material that, that they just simply do not have access to. Like, I believe it was Peter DeFazio who was told that he was a congressman who was told mm-hmm. he could not have access to uh, continuity of government information, for example. And he couldn't even know what was classified. He wasn't even allowed to know what he couldn't know in terms of his general contours. (laughs) So, yeah, there needs to be, it needs to be extended to the intelligence agencies that we know of uh, and to the military. And uh, there needs to be some explanation of the emergency powers and where they are nested in the government, not that to where it would jeopardize American security, but of course that's the argument they would use to you know, argue against anything like this. But we need to understand what emergency powers have been vested in what institutions in the United States. It's quite possible that there's overriding authority uh, given to organizations in the security services that we don't, that we don't even know. And uh, mm-hmm. this, is, uh, this, is, this is very weighty, serious stuff. And uh, we just, a lot of our history, the last, you know, since the end of World War II, when we became this global empire, we just don't know. It's an abyss. And uh, oversight is what we would need, but it's so uh, unrealistic to expect that at this point. Help us to understand some of the details of this program. The Intercept says, for example, that many of these operations are taking place in countries where we actually have diplomatic relations. Is it possible that not all of these are proxy wars, that maybe they're just simple joint operations? Or do you think that the U.S. is acting independently of whatever it is uh, the country knows or thinks is happening? Well, because of the amount of state secrecy that we're dealing with here, I can only speculate. But I would look at the 1990s as uh, an important time to understand this kind of, of warfare, this kind of dark warfare. And if you look at what was going on under the Bill Clinton administration, and it really starts under Bush, but it continues under Clinton, there's a lot of counterterrorism in places and and different kinds of operations and al-Qaeda operations that all play out according to the geopolitical designs of neoconservative people. So in the Balkans, in Central Asia, Chechnya, Azerbaijan, you have, and and a lot of this involves al-Qaeda, itself. And al-Qaeda functioned as a U.S. proxy throughout the 90s in a strange way in that the the actions of the U.S., sometimes they would actually, like in Azerbaijan, al-Qaeda types just worked in conjunction with Mega Oil, which was uh, founded by 
uh, former Iran-Contra and Air America people like Richard Secord, mm -hmm. and they eventually affected a coup and switched, you know, using al-Qaeda-type assets that had formerly been related to Afghanistan, but then, uh, you know, were sort of repurposed during this time period. And in other places, the U.S. would come in to fight against these, these same forces, but it was allowing the U.S. to establish a military presence in strategic areas of the world like Uzbekistan or, uh, you know, Yugoslavia, it, yeah. it, authorized, it just served to justify the breakup of Yugoslavia and so-called humanitarian intervention there. Um, and this was going on all throughout the 1990s, where if you look at what al-Qaeda was doing, it was, it, even when, it, when the U.S. was attacking them, it, the very fact that the U.S. was able to be in those areas was advancing U.S. geopolitical goals uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union to uh, assert U.S. dominance in, in the former Soviet Union and the energy heartlands of Central Asia and the Middle East. And so it begs the question of, like, was the U.S., through its allies in Saudi, in Saudi Arabia and Pakistan and Turkey, were they funding uh, you know, these is Islamist paramilitary al-Qaeda right. types in order to justify U.S. counterterrorism measures in these countries and have a U.S. footprint in these regions? Mm -hmm. uh, in mm -hmm. order to uh, advance U.S. geopolitical goals, you know, I, I think that that was going on. And the funny thing is, well, I won't say it's funny, but I asked Lawrence Wilkerson about this because he was at the State Department mm -hmm. under George W. Bush. Yep. He was there under Colin Powell as deputy. Yes. And I said, were you aware that uh, the U.S. State Department officials were killed in the embassy attacks right before he took office? And he said they talked a lot about Al Qaeda when they came in early on because he was concerned about this as a official in the State Department. And I said, were you aware that al-Qaeda was being used in the 90s in places like Kosovo and Bosnia, and they tried to kill Gaddafi with, mm -hmm. uh, you know, MI6 did with al-Qaeda right. people, et cetera, et cetera. He said, no, he had no idea. So when you're asking about whether the, this is going on in places where the U.S. has diplomatic relations, I would say that uh, it is, and I would say that it's quite likely the State Department is kept in the dark about these things because that seemed to be the case with Lawrence Wilkerson, sure. he was at the State Department. Yeah, he was, the, was under a Republican administration. And he was he was chief of staff to the Secretary of State, and then he was director of policy planning. So one of the topmost officials in the State Department, if anybody should have known that something like that was going on, he should have known. But he was never informed. And I would venture to say that that the Secretary of State was never informed. Because that's that's how the intelligence community works. Right. They shape the realities, even not just in the way that they brief people. But I think that there's a that there, it's quite likely that there's a foreign policy of sorts that is parallel to the one that the, the presidents think that they're dealing with. That just creates the realities they want to create for people. And then they shape the environment that the presidents and other officials are going to be acting in. So this is a, a frightening migration of yeah. uh, sovereignty in the United States when it comes down to it. Uh, one last question for you, Aaron. What's happening in Africa seems much more sinister to me. Most Americans don't even know that we have troops in places like Niger or Cameroon or uh, Mauritania um, until our troops get killed there, right? And that, then it leaks out somehow. Um, why are we in these countries? in the Sahel, and why is it supposed to be so doggone secret? I mean, it's uh, you have to make a, some very preposterous 
stretches and leaps to argue that anything going on in, uh, you know, say the jungles of uh, sub sub-Saharan Africa is a threat to the homeland. <laughs> and so it pretty clearly seems to be neocolonialism that the U.S. wants to make sure that it has access to the valuable resources of Africa um, and that it can continue to plunder the continent, uh, continuing the work of the Europeans for, uh, you know, a century or so or more before them. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is really what the U.S. wants to do, maintain neocolonialism. It's why the first independent uh, statesman, first independent head of state in Africa, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, in the 60s, uh, after the assassination of Lumumba and other events, he wrote the book Neocolonialism, where he said uh, the, the post colonial promises have failed to materialize, and that's because they have decided to go for neocolonialism, which is to covertly dominate Africa in perpetuity and keep the continent as a loyal supplier of raw materials and perhaps labor, but mostly just raw materials, mm -hmm. and that there's not to be any resource wealth that gets put back into improving the actual societies in Africa. Mm -hmm. China offers a slightly different and better a deal for these countries and curtailing or precluding U.S., uh, you know, weakening in Africa and the rise of China in Africa. That's really, I think, the big goal of a lot of these operations. OK, we'll leave it there. That was the voice of Aaron Good. He's a political scientist and host of the American Exception podcast on Patreon. Check him out there. He's also the author of American Exception, Empire and the Deep State, published by Skyhorse. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we're getting into some domestic economic news where might have a little bit of a game of chicken here between the Biden administration and big oil companies when it comes to investing in places that Biden's pretending might be off limits sometime soon. We're going to talk about how uh, realistic any of that is with our guest, Steve Grumbine. He's founder and CEO of the nonprofits Real Progressives and Real Progress in Action. He's the host of the podcast Macro and Cheese. He's an MMT evangelist. Steve, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Great. Um, Steve, I know you've been talking about the climate recently and the uh, the strange lack of urgency from a lot of quarters, right? It's, it's not just the government, as you were saying. But um, in light of that, I wanted to talk about this story in the Wall Street Journal today showing that oil companies are confident enough to keep investing billions of dollars into, in this case, uh, drilling prospects in the Gulf of Mexico. The head of Shell's deepwater operations arm told the journalist company is confident in a long-term future of steady returns in the Gulf, and Shell is committed to investing huge amounts of money—that's his phrase—huge amounts of money in exploring and developing projects there. And so, you know, in contrast, I think it was earlier this week 
uh, might have been last week, but I think it was earlier this week that the Biden administration um, issued a, a proposal for different possibilities of uh, offshore leasing of federal lands, right? And in that proposal, they are still dangling the possibility of suspending all new offshore drilling leases. And, you know, I mean, you might say, oh, well, these oil companies, they make so much money. They're, they're always making good decisions. I've watched them make very bad decisions and throw good money after bad. But in this, uh, in this particular instance, do you get any sense from the administration or from the people who think they can pressure this administration uh, that Shell's investment is going to turn out to be unwise? You know, I don't I think we're asking a, a, a wrong question. here. All right. right? The, the, the question to me is what is going to make Shell actually keep that that oil production domestic? Mm -hmm. What is going to make them not sell it abroad? Mm -hmm. What is going to, you, you know, what is going to make them do that? We have no national energy policy. Right. We are a free market country, man. We live and die by free markets. So this has always been the question. It's like we've got we're, we're producing tons of oil from this country already, mm -hmm. but we're shipping it abroad. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, fundamentally, it's, it's, it's like if you have masks during a pandemic and you're wondering why we don't have enough masks, but yet you find out that you're exporting them abroad, there's something fundamentally wrong there, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like, this is one of the aspects of good trade policy is make sure you make enough for your own people and then the stuff that's left over, use that as a means of trading. Mm -hmm. Instead, what we've done is we've eliminated our ability to produce and, and maintain our own domestic uh, supply, and, and we're hoping and praying that the free market will supply it for us. Mm -hmm. so to me, I think this is a fundamental issue of, you know, how do we construct an energy policy that ensures, I mean, because the whole point of pumping, the whole point of drilling is to, quote unquote, offset the, the price, okay, right. to, to, to bring the prices down. Right. And if you think about this, there's, let's just say hypothetically, Russia supplied 6% of our oil supply prior to this Ukraine-Russia sanctions. Mm -hmm. There's a 6% production that we're missing. Who comes in and swoops in and says, hey, we can provide that? Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. So Saudi Arabia is really, in effect, taken just that 6% and said, we're the monopoly creator, we're the monopoly producer of this, and we'll set the price for that 6% however we want. And that is what's driving up the costs. Mm -hmm. Until you can offset that and guarantee that that oil will be produced here and used locally, I don't know that you can guarantee, because a lot of these prices, you realize, they, they do these things like a year in advance. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're making these agreements a year in advance. The price at the pump, you know, that's a different story. You know, that's a combination of taxes and other fines, fees, and penalties for the local, mm -hmm. and then add in the actual cost. So mm -hmm. I, I think that there's, there's a little bit of a uh, do something, do something. Okay, well, we'll open up the Gulf for them to do right. more. But what's guaranteeing it? I, I see no, I see no guarantees there. I just see, see nothing but climate. Disaster. I don't know how you can be complaining that we don't have a national energy policy when Joe Biden was on Twitter just the other day telling oil companies to lower their prices and do it now. And so, I mean, I don't know what more you want from him. He's out there tweeting. Sometimes he says it, you know, directly into a microphone. He's probably pretty soon he's going to actually wag his finger. And so, you know, what do, what do people want? 
I'm just curious. Did he get through the whole sentence without stuttering? I mean, my goodness, the dude is just absolutely. He's really a a walking caricature. He is a shambles. (laughs) He is a shambles. And, you know, in the meantime, I mean, again, this is just a a bunch of stuff on Shell, but it just kept coming up. Uh, Shell is predicting today that its profits from oil refining uh, will likely have tripled in the second quarter. Uh, this is to $28 a barrel, up from just over 10 in January and March. Shell has already reported a record $9.1 billion profits for its first quarter. The next is likely to be $10.8 billion, which is more than six times the profit from the same period last year. And so, you know, there is no reason for them to stop investing. Right. There's no reason for them to stop investing in these short term profits because they are enormous. And all we have is the Biden administration, you know, finger wagging. And it is sort of, you know, it's not surprising, but it is uh, somehow, I guess, emblematic that you can simultaneously have companies like Shell very happily and very publicly profiting hand over fist. I mean, none of this is hidden. And at the same time, we have this uh, price crisis that is really affecting, you know, it is affecting the lives of Americans, especially people who don't have, you know, that much uh, elasticity in their household budgets. Clearly, it is a political problem for this government. And they keep going, well, what what could we possibly do about it other other than ask? And it's just pretty remarkable to watch because it shows the, the, the limitations we have imposed on ourselves and the uh, you know, submissive position we have put ourselves in when it comes to uh, profit in the United States. Yeah, I mean, welcome to capitalism, and more importantly, welcome to laissez-faire neoliberal, you know, capitalism. Mm-hmm. This is this is it in a nutshell. I mean, for real, this literally is a case study. And what's wrong with it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, it, it, it is. Like jumps right off the page, right? It does. <laughs> And yet, you know, the the suggestions that are being, I mean, more than one person has now said on this show, uh, Nixon put a price cap on, you know, like you could, you could do things, you could do things other than uh, release oil from the strategic reserves and pretend that somehow like starting more drilling projects now is going to have any kind of immediate implication. There, There are other things that could be done, but we're not, we cannot imagine them in the sort of political, uh, farmhouse that we inhabit. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just just think about this. We subsidize, subsidize uh, oil production around the world, but there's tons and tons and tons of oil subsidies, mm-hmm. okay? If for some reason, and, and I don't endorse this, by the way, what I'm about to say is not an endorsement of this approach. In fact, I would be very angry if they did this, right. but if they wanted to, they could seriously subsidize and say, we want to make sure that are the people, the American people pay no more than $2 a gallon and we'll cover the rest. Right. And they could offset that. We would never know it. You know, obviously that would blow the lid. We shouldn't do it, but yeah. Yeah. Taxes, not funding spending would become really, really evident quickly if Mm -hmm. they did that. Uh, So that would stop the ruse for a bit, but yes, I mean, there's a million things they could do. Uh, but I think the most important one, which is not going to be touched, unfortunately, is having a coherent energy policy that prevents this from ever happening to begin with. You know, one of the keys to even developing nations, aside from food sovereignty, is energy sovereignty. These are two things that can literally 
keep you enslaved to whoever owns whatever. You're completely and utterly dependent on them. Mm-hmm. And and countries that free themselves up from the bondage of dependency on foreign, uh, you know, foreign debt, foreign, uh, you know, oil, et cetera, foreign food, you know, people that can produce their own food, produce their own uh, industrial products and produce their own uh, energy. They have a lot more flexibility to really address the problems within their nation, which which is unfathomable to the United States, who is hell-bent on ensuring that corporations rule us as opposed to the elected representatives we put in office. Mm -hmm. The other thing I wanted to talk to you about, Steve, is, um, you know, we are we got the new jobless claims today. This is not something we watch uh, as, you know, feverishly as we did during the pandemic, but new jobless claims were up very slightly last week. And so, you know, maybe this is good news for the Federal Reserve, because after all, we've had Larry Summers advocating for a jobless rate of over 5%. That's what we need to calm inflation. Um, So maybe we should all be cheering. They're doing it. Uh, We have all signs right now pointing to another 0.75 rate increase next month. And I wanted to just ask you, you know, what 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 are you seeing that people are experiencing already as a result of of the choice to make these interventions and not others and what should we expect to happen next month you know are we going to see inflation start or not inflation um unemployment start to tick up and see you know celebrations of that or sort of slightly slightly veiled celebrations of that in in you know e- economic journals like the wall street journal well, just remember this whole concept of NARU, N-A-I-R-U, this non-accelerating uh, rate of uh, unemployment. Basically, the, it, it's the percentage of employment that will maintain the stability of of the economy. That this is the the right wing libertarian baloney approach to economics. Mm-hmm. Okay, and basically, this is the same thing as putting leeches on someone or bleeding out a patient. Or mm-hmm. it's, it's just it, what you're doing is you're literally killing the economy. And so we already are in recession now. We just had the numbers come out the other day. I don't know if they've made announcements mm-hmm. on this yet or not, but there's we are definitely in a recession now. Um, and by doing this, they will start laying more and more people off. And and this has got its own it's very hard to put air back in the tires. It's very hard to prime the pump to get the engine going again once you start doing these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And really, at the end of the day, they're doing a couple approaches with this. By using the interest rates, That you know, people get it wrong. Raising interest rates actually creates inflation, okay? Because what you're doing, th- these individuals that own bonds, these bond vigilantes, as they say, these are the rich people. Mm-hmm. They're, they're rich usually. You know, yes, your retirement accounts, you know, buy bonds and there are other rationale, there are other savings plans and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, 401ks and stuff that invest in bonds. But but honestly, this is typically people that have money making more money off of that money. Mm-hmm. So the idea of raising interest rates is just giving people that already have money more money. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I've always been fascinated of why they think that that's a good idea in an inflationary environment. I mean, it makes the cost of credit harder for other people, mm-hmm. but it also gives more money to the wealthy. So it expands inequality right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. it it's just kind of a no brainer that this is not the right way to go about it. But they've convinced themselves this is the neoclassical approach to things. 
And, and you're going to get the same kind of results we got in the 70s. Everything is going to bottom out. It's going to get really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if they continue down this pathway. So, yeah, I expect to see more and more and more unemployed people um, as they manufacture this. And, you know, it, this st- struck me today. There was an article about mortgage rates falling in the in the journal, which is like, OK, whatever. They, they fell by a couple of uh, fractions of a percentage point. But this little tidbit in the middle noted that in April, the typical American household, which is a household with an income near the U.S. median that purchases a home near the median purchase price. So this typical household would have needed more than 41 percent of its income to cover monthly mortgage payments. That's according to the Atlanta Fed. And that to me, you know, that's a real indication of of how precarious even the the middle class is going to be in the next recession, right? These are people who have have grabbed that rung, right, of home ownership, which is supposed to be this avenue toward financial stability, and which is, of course, increasingly out of reach of people who haven't gotten there yet. But these guys, if you know, if you've got to spend more than forty percent of your income just to cover your monthly mortgage, how? secure can you possibly feel, right? And so I want to ask, you know, in light of this, if you are, uh, what the next recession is going to look like and what it is going to look like, you know, not even for people who are down and out already, but for people who might have uh, might have assumed that they were relatively safe from these economic fluctuations. Right. So just remember, I, I, I say this as often as I can, because I want people to really get this framework in mind. Mm-hmm. There's three ways to get money into the economy. There is either federal spending, which they have cut the spigot off Biden's busy beating his chest that he's cut $2 trillion in deficit uh, reduction. Um, So you have the government spending to put money in the economy. That's been cut off. Then you have the export status of your nation. Well, we are by far and haven't been for 30 years a exporting nation. We are a net importing nation. So we're not getting the backfill of money into our economy through our exports. Mm -hmm. So that leaves us with one final place to get it. And that right there is private debt, private credit. Mm -hmm. And so with them expanding the interest rates, making cost of credit even higher, it's going to make people suffer even more. Mm -hmm. So that next rung up, like, I'll just give you an example. We suddenly had no water in my house the other day. Mm. And I couldn't figure it out. We're on a well. Mm-hmm. And uh, called the uh, uh, the folks that work on wells and came out and said, yep, you got a problem. Your uh, pressure tank bladder broke, so you have no water pressure. Oof. And your pool pump has been working overtime, to tr- or not pool pump, but your uh, well pump has been working overtime. And it's dead now, too, so it's going to be $6,000 to replace this. It's out of nowhere. Yeah. It's like, boom, out of nowhere. Now, most people maintaining a home, home ownership, the mortgage is one part of that. But maintenance and upkeep for roofs and windows and water yeah. and, and anything else that goes wrong, these are all factors that go into your monthly bills, that go into your ability to sustain yourself. You know, you get a flat tire, you better have a little bit of money set aside so you can get a replacement. Well, what happens when you start eating into people's reserve funds that take care of those very, very necessary maintenance and upkeep things that keep you out of the really, really high expensive repairs? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like if you don't fix your roof, you got a small leak. All of a sudden you now have to replace the ceiling in your kitchen and, uh, you know, any number of things. Right? Maybe your electric even gets screwed. So there's a lot of dominoes that fall through this that maybe don't seem as apparent right up front. 
Um, but they become, and then you're asking yourself, well, where do I get the money to cover the shortfall for that? I'm already tapped out. I'm, I'm way too leveraged in private debt now. I'm out of credit card room. They're yeah. not approving me for private loans. Now what do I do? Yeah. And this is the very real scenario that we're, we're facing now because, like I said, you got one final place to get money back in the economy, and that is through taking out bank loans. Yeah. And, and that's where we're at now. Yep. And these are the people who are not going to be made whole at the end of this recession. We'll have just, you know, adding to the number of people living really on the edge in this country. Steve Grumbine, that was perfect timing. Uh, Why don't you tell our listeners where they can find more of your work before we let you go? Absolutely. Come to realprogressives.org on our website and go to our media channel and you can find all of the stuff I do with Rogue Scholar, Monday, Wednesday, Friday noons on our Real Progress in Action YouTube channel. And you can also find my uh, podcast, Macro and Cheese, that goes up every Saturday morning at 8 a.m. It's on literally every single podcasting platform yep. from Spotify and SoundCloud. All right. That's all we got, Steve. That was Steve Grimbine. You can find him all over the place. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. We'll be right back. and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with Michelle Witte. Relations between Iran and the West continue to deteriorate. A former British diplomat and the wife of another British diplomat were arrested in Iran yesterday and charged with espionage. Iranian authorities say they were collecting soil samples in the desert near what is alleged to be an Iranian nuclear facility. As one does for fun. I know, I right? Like, what about all my vials of soil samples yes, that I've taken that I've on my taken. travels? <laughs> <laughs> the U.S. yesterday imposed new sanctions on Iran amid half-hearted efforts to re-energize negotiations for the U.S. to re-enter the JCPOA or Iran nuclear deal, and a U.K. warship seized an Iranian shipment of advanced missiles on its way to Yemen's Houthis. I'm, I'm reluctant to call them Houthi rebels mm-hmm. since they run the country. And in other news, FBI Director Christopher Wray, in a rare appearance with his British counterpart, warned that the threat posed by the Chinese government to U.S. businesses is getting worse. And he even suggested that China may be taking steps to insulate itself from economic repercussions if it invades Taiwan. Mm. We're joined here in the studio by Tony Alexiou. He's a principal at the Minotaur Group, a Washington, D.C. consulting firm that specializes in geopolitical risk and homeland security consultancy. It's been a long time, Tony. Welcome back. It has been. Thanks for having me back, John. It's been uh, it's been busy, and busy is good when you're a small yeah, business. So, th- that's right. You know, that's God. right. And with all these kerfuffles taking place around the world, that has to be good for business. I want to I want to talk about Iran uh to start this off, we've had a number of guests here on the show over the past several months uh, to talk about Iran and the possibility of the U.S. rejoining or re-exceeding to the JCPOA. Nobody has been terribly optimistic. And we've had, you know, Iran watchers, we've had Iranians, and nobody has been optimistic. We don't hear much about this in the U.S. media, uh, but today we hear about new sanctions. And these sanctions are very specific. They're they're on specific Iranians and on the oil industry. Um, 
what are your thoughts on the JCPOA? Is it dead? Is that why these these sanctions were placed? It yeah, it's in the form that it was. It is dead. It's not going to work. And it was that you know we, the U.S. pulled out of the JCPOA back in I think it was eighteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was dead before then, quite frankly. And uh, the U.S. administration saw that at that point in time and, and, and did what needed to be done. But they didn't. Ha- they, the administration didn't take it a step further and try to renegotiate. They, they kind of threw on sanctions and kind right. of left it what it was. So Iran took this this opportunity and said, "Okay, you know what? Fine, we got the sanctions. We're not. Have, I'm not under this treaty anymore, so I'm not really mm-hmm. watched by eagle eyes anymore per se. Uh, so I'm just going to move forward with my nuclear program slowly. And granted, because of the sanctions, they can't get the materials they need. So it's been a very slow process. They're not mm-hmm. anywhere where, near where they should be in in four years at this point right now. Uh, they've been moving much slower than than a typical nuclear program would move. But they're right. still making some progress there. They want sanctions to end because yeah. they want." They want to be able to, you know, a, a, the, the economic situations that people have been in is pretty bad. And they want to be able to move forward with their program. Uh, so they're appealing to the U.S. and to the West saying, okay, look, we'll come back to the table and talk about this. But with the conditions, you remove sanctions. Right. The West like, okay, we'll remove sanctions if you stop your nuclear program. Mm-hmm. Iran's like, well, we're not going to move the, remove the nuclear program because, you know, you got the sanctions. So we got this circle mm-hmm. right now. So nothing's going to change for, for a little while unless, unless some other thing happens. You know, we, we talk about the British diplomats, and we'll talk about that, I'm sure, in a minute. Sure. But that's one, other, that's one way you can try to change the conversation a little bit. That's what Iran is trying to do. We'll get to that in a little bit, though. Uh, but at this point, it's the sanctions aren't going to be ending anytime soon. And they were added more on, I guess, today, you know, mm-hmm. the other day, because of they want to try to get Iran back to the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they've, they've been able to find, Iran's been able to find little loopholes in the sanctions right now. And this is one of the ones they closed, the Commerce Department closed off today. Right. Uh, with, you know, companies from the Emirates and the, and the Far East having, helping move Iranian petrochemicals through exactly the, right. sanctions and stuff yeah. like that. Uh, that's not been closed up again. They'll find another one because that's what people... Well, let me interrupt you on that point then, because this is something that's never really been made terribly clear, is the U.S. left the JCPOA, but the rest of the signatories didn't. And so if you are, you know, the French, the Germans, the Japanese, the British, you can still do business with Iran, can you not? Like, why, why wouldn't the Iranians just then walk away from the United States and cultivate the relations that they have... With the existing signatories. Yeah, because the U.S. is the biggest kid on the block right now, mm-hmm. economically, militarily, politically in the world. And sure, France and Germany, whatever else, are still in the GCPOA. But with the U.S. walking away from it, it kind of loses its, its teeth a little bit, you know? And Iran knows this as well. So, you know, Macron can jump up and down and say, hey, what's going on? Yeah. Kind of shrug and like, okay, fine, Emmanuel, we'll, we'll talk. You know right. what I mean? That's as far as that goes. <laughs> it's not, you know, it, it, Tehran's not really worried about what Europe is saying about the JCPOA. Yeah. Uh, the sanctions are coming from the U.S., sanctions are being enforced by the U.S., and it's become a bit of an issue for Iran. It's a big issue for Iran. Um, you know, and then you've got, you know, Iranian allies like Israel and Saudi right now that are helping the U.S. keep an eye on Iran and how they're doing with their sanctions. And it's, it's these are the people that, these are, Tehran's got to work with Washington. Mm-hmm. Sure, we could talk to Paris or Berlin or Rome or whatever, but Washington's kind of the guy that's going to do this for us. So it matters. Right. Uh, this group of Westerners that was arrested uh, yesterday in Iran. I don't mean to laugh because it's a serious thing. Of course, you're in, in an Iranian prison today. Uh, the Iranian government says they were taking soil samples, uh, but an attorney for the group said that they were tourists who were just exploring the desert. Uh, the Iranians tend to arrest a lot of Westerners. At any given time, there are half a dozen Americans, usually dual nationals, uh, who are under arrest in Iran. Is this, do you think, a part of that pattern? Do you think that this is to put pressure on the West to get back to the negotiating table? I think so, and I alluded to that a few minutes ago. Yeah. It's it's a way to change the conversation a little bit, because right now traditional mm-hmm. means have not been working for Iran or for, for, for the U.S., for that matter. 
So, and, and this this is, you know, in countries in Iran's position, I've been doing this since the dawn of time. Sure. Remember back in the 80s, you know, the Hezbollah in Lebanon would kidnap American journalists and hold on to because they were bargaining chips. And that's what these people are. So, granted, now you're walking around Iran with, with, with a history of, of doing this stuff and you decide to be near what is purportedly a possible nuclear site. Let's take soil samples, you know. My kids this at the beach where they had a sample. They, it's not quite the yeah. same thing, though. Right. <laughs> you know, no. right. So it's. Uh, it, and anybody who's watched the Americans know you don't need to actually take this sample. You just walk through the sand or the dirt and you turn your shoes over to the lab. At, at that point. Right. Yeah. And that's more your, your former career than mine. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so to them, it's a bargaining chip, and it's a, it's a bargain. And it is a legitimate bargaining chip. And in the past, you know, granted, it's probably not going to be the big breakthrough in talks Iran's looking for, mm-hmm. but they're going to get something out of this. You know, North Korea does a lot of the same thing, too. They yeah. don't arrest people, but, you know, they'll, they'll launch them. When they need money, they'll launch mm-hmm. a missile. And the U.S. like, okay, so what do I got to do to make you not launch missiles anymore? When you got, you know, a few million bucks to, you know, feed right. the village, fine, we'll do that kind of thing. And that's what Iran's looking for here. That concession that might get talk started a little bit again. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe that slight pullback in sanctions gives them breathing room. It'll probably happen because no one likes to have their foreigners stuck in an Iranian jail. Right. So they'll, they'll get something. It'll never be out in the open. It'll never be covered by the media. It's just these, these things are done quietly. And that's what's going to happen at the end of the day. That's, I think, why Iran captured these people at the end of the day. I'm going to go off subject just for a second because you said something just now that that made me think about an article I read this morning. I want your, your, your reaction to it, and then we'll go back to Iran. Uh, there, was a, there was a piece at CNN.com saying that the North Koreans have been unusually quiet lately. Usually when they uh, fire a, a missile or launch a rocket as a test, they'll crow about it for several days afterwards. They've launched a couple, and then they haven't said anything. And the speculation is that that they're struggling mightily right now with COVID. Uh, they've they've refused uh, Chinese vaccines. They don't want any uh, any outside assistance, whether it's from the Chinese or the Russians or anybody else. And they're just going to tough this out. As a result, it seems like everybody in the country is sick or has been sick. Um, do you think that that there's something to that? I and, think so. I think, you know, COVID is is, is bad right now in, in North Korea, as I under, as we understand. And again, uh-huh. reports coming out are based on on on, on, on yeah, just, travelers, just, Chinese travelers, and there's no official word from North Korea. The only right. thing actually officially that I read from North Korea was was a few days ago. Something caught my eye where they're saying that. Uh, uh, South Korean balloons brought COVID into their country. I saw that. Yeah, it was something, yeah. you know, it's what you expect. To yeah, the South man. Koreans put COVID on balloons and right. sent them across right. the but border. But they're having yeah. a rough time with COVID, as I understand right now. And that's, that would make sense. So for all we know, Kim Jong-un himself could have it right now. You right. know, and, you know, hopefully they have Omicron. So it's not that bad, but right. who knows what they have. Sure. No one knows for a fact what's going on over there. No one's getting, no one's, you know, no one's getting vaccinated. They also got the principle of Juche in North Korea, which is a complete, utter self-reliance. Mm-hmm. So that's why the society is as close as it is. And that's what their, their principle was back with Kim Il-sung back in the day. That's so right. That was, yeah. That yeah, was Kim fun. Il-sung, the yeah. first one. Uh, and this whole thing is like, we are, you know, we're in North Korea and we're just going to do everything ourselves internally. And they still carry that. That's a big cornerstone of their policies in North Korea and of their, of their, of their, of their existence. So it doesn't surprise me that they're not accepting any help from anybody. And also, if you accept help, then you admit that we have a major problem here. And, and you can't do that. that so. Yeah. Getting back to China. Uh, the British Navy intercepted a Dow, uh, and uh, the BBC is reporting that on this Dow, they find they found advanced, what they're calling advanced Iranian missiles on their way to Yemen, uh, destined for the Houthis. You've been to the Middle East. You know what a Dow is. It's, uh, you know, the size of this room. It's, uh, there's not much to it. It's, uh, you know, a wooden boat, a traditional wooden boat from the Gulf, and, um, uh, if if they could fit more than three or four missiles on this thing, I would be shocked by it. But 
But the Brits are are calling this a major international incident today. Uh where do you think we go uh, from here? Is will this interception have uh, any any effect on the status quo? Because the status quo is actually pretty good. You've got the ceasefire. It's the second ceasefire now between the Houthis on the one side and the Saudis and the Emiratis on the other. There are ongoing talks, although they're not moving very quickly, to make the ceasefire permanent. Does this throw a, a wrench into the works? Not, not, in the, not in the long term. This may be something that weighs an eyebrow today or tomorrow. But at the end of the day, look, the war in Yemen, it was probably, it was probably one of the most brutal wars in yeah. the post-World War II era. Just yeah. horrific, the humanitarian disaster in that country. Uh, but at this point, you can argue very clearly that the Houthis have won the war. The war mm-hmm. is essentially yeah. over right now. They're just Agreed. Up. The and, Houthis have won. And the, and the negotiations that are happening right now aren't so much really about who's going to run the country because the Houthis are running the country at this point right now. It's a question of now, in my opinion, I think they're going to split the country in half. It'll be North and South Yemen like it Again. was some years ago. Yeah. You know, and, and and honestly, I don't remember when they when they, when they, when they actually united. I remember looking at that. April like, 1990. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. I was like 15 years old. So I was like, yeah, I didn't really care about Yemen then. <laughs> but it was. I, I went to Yemen just before unification and I went again just after unification. It's funny too. Um, when I, the first time I went, there were two Yemens and they were talking about joining. And then I went and they were celebrating. People were literally dancing in the streets and they were setting off fireworks. And then I would, the third time I went, they're like, eh, this isn't really working out the way we thought it was. We don't think we like those other Yemenis. And then the fourth time I went, they're launching Scud rockets at each other well, between Sana and Aden. Story. The Sunni, yeah, the Sunni versus good. the Shia. Yeah. Sex. That's all it comes down to at the end of the day. You know what I mean? It's like the, the, and that's what this war is. That's what it was. You know, the yeah. Houthis are Shia and they're backed by Iran. The, mm-hmm. the government side with the Sunnis are backed by the Saudis. You know, and the fact that, that, they, that they're making the biggest thing about the Iranian, you know, Iranian Dow. Fine. It's not a good thing. They are violating an agreement, but I play devil's advocate here. Saudi is the worst kept the worst kept secret in the whole war. Yeah. Is Saudi supplying the other side, right? So it's it's tit for tat here at this point, right? Uh, and that's why it's not going to make a whole lot of news. I think the Brits are actually making more of a bellyache about it because the whole story about their diplomat, quite frankly. Yes, you know, it's all related. I think that's probably right, right. So it's like you took my diplomat. Well, I'm going to make a fool out of you, and mm-hmm. it's okay. Great, you found my Dow. You found my three missiles. Okay. Fine. You know, you know, interestingly, too, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Greek government intercepted an Iranian oil tanker and the United States asked them to seize the oil and turn it over to the United Nations for sale. Um, I think it was going, was it going to Venezuela or something like that? Probably. I think it was going to Venezuela. And then much to my pleasant surprise, the Greek Supreme Court stepped in and said, whoa, wait a minute. You can't just snatch a ship off the high seas. Right. That's called piracy. That's and it. then you you steal its its uh, cargo and sell it and keep the money. You can't do that. No, absolutely not. And, and they ordered the ship to be released. And that was it. And that's that's ultimately the right thing to do. And the Greeks, you know, they're fine. They are allies of the U.S. They're NATO members and all that stuff. But on the flip side, one thing I'll give the Greeks and, you know, the bureaucracy in Greece is its own mess and everything. Mm-hmm. So it's the fact that I'm giving Greece a point right now is a pretty big deal. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and that it, that they actually did the right thing there because it's at the end of the day they're not the ones that have the sanctions against Iran. And it right. was, I'm not sure if it was in Greek waters or international waters. This thing when it was caught, yeah, it was in it was in the Aegean. It was in the Aegean. Mm-hmm. All right, so it was in Greek again under Greek law of the sea. It goes back to where it was. It's a free mm-hmm. ship unless it was attacking the country, which it wasn't. <laughs> They've got right. no reason to hold that. You know, to do what the U.S. says with it. They could do if they. I suppose they wanted to be nice about it. They could, but. They had no reason to. There was and compelling. The Greeks historically have had no problem with the Iranians. No, absolutely not. The Greeks, Greeks have always had a good relationship with Middle Eastern countries, mm-hmm. you know, because it's, it's it's at the edge of Europe. It's what, you know, culturally, Greeks are as much as much Easterners as they are as Westerners, mm-hmm. you know, and it's yeah. it's the cultures are, are very much intertwined and the people are very much intertwined. 
You know, it's it's one of the few Western countries that has good relations with both Israel and with Iran and yes. with Saudi. It's just, they're, they're, they're yes. good allies with the Middle East. Hey, Christopher Ray, the uh, the FBI director and his counterpart at MI5, the the British internal intelligence or domestic intelligence service, they gave a rare joint talk yesterday in which they came down hard on the Chinese. Uh, Ray said that China is the gravest threat to U.S. businesses in the world. Presumably, he was talking about hacking and industrial espionage and stuff like that. He said that Western businesses must better prepare themselves for attacks from China. So I want to ask you, how much of a threat to U.S. businesses are the Chinese? And what exactly are we talking about here? Are we talking about cyber or are we talking about um, old-fashioned competition and and uh, intellectual property. What, well, what exactly do they mean? Well, it's both, really. At the end of the day, you know, in the Chinese industrial espionage—it's not a new thing. But right. We always been over the Never. course of decades. Yeah. We've heard about you know a professor getting arrested for selling stuff to the Chinese or some defense contractors, you know, breaking his his, uh, his clearance uh, requirements and stuff like that. So it's not a new thing. The thing is, the Chinese—they are a big threat because they're really good at doing stuff like this. They're good at at, at snatching information mm-hmm. off cyber networks and off physical networks. Uh, but they're not the only ones in the world that are doing this either. You know, there's groups in Eastern Europe that are doing this stuff. There's groups in Africa that are doing this stuff. You know, information is is a big business, and you can make a lot of money selling information uh, in this world. And if you have something like this, you know, it's, it it makes sense. As for U.S. companies, yeah, China is, is they're probably the most developed of the, uh, in terms of of terms of industrial espionage. Mm-hmm. Yes, I if I you know as a business owner myself, I have my my networks beefed up as far as I possibly can, and I would implore every American business, every business in the world, to do that for that matter. Even you know your studio here for that matter. Um, have the latest, you know, security software on. Make sure your networks are tested. Make sure they're beefed up. And that's that's what I'd like to think that Christopher Ray is trying to say to people at this point is that you know industrial espionage is a real thing, and we you know, and some of the people that get targeted by China are mm-hmm. people that you know work in the defense industry mm-hmm. or things of that nature, which would not be a great thing to you know to, to get out to China. And we've seen this thing in the past. You know, we would launch a new new fighter pilot here, and then six months later we see the Chinese knockoff flying around Beijing. Yeah. You know, it, it happens. I, I remember seeing that with the space shuttle. Absolutely. And then I remember NASA com- coming out and saying, well, you know, we can't say that they stole it from us because there are only so many shapes that you can make a space shuttle aerodynamically. I suppose. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's but, like, yeah, they stole it from us. It's like an Hall Street version. <laughs> you know, it comes I, down to I it. remember being, I, when I was serving in Bahrain, I was the intellectual property uh, officer there. And, uh, I mean, everything from, from VHS tapes at the time to high-end golf clubs. I mean, you almost couldn't tell what the Chinese knockoff was. Absolutely. The quality was so good, but they had stolen everything. Absolutely, everything. You know, and yeah, we're not talking about you know purses they're selling in the you know on Canal Street, New York, right now. It's, it's it's much bigger than that. But it's the same idea, though. And yes, I would very much behoove all businesses that are listening right now to beef up their networks and, and implement their information security protocols as much as absolutely possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Christopher Ray also said that the Chinese appear to be preparing themselves for economic sanctions. Is there any indication that the Chinese are actually preparing? And what does that mean? They're preparing themselves themselves for, for sanctions. Is there any indication that you've seen that the Chinese are preparing to attack Taiwan, which would then necessitate a response from the West? It seems to me that the risk of attacking Taiwan would be prohibitively high 
uh, and it would force really the the whole planet into an economic spiral. It would right now. The West and the East are both taking steps to kind of decouple in that case. COVID showed us one, and the COVID showed us nothing else. It showed us that a global supply chain was detrimental yes. because when things got shut down in China, we were having trouble getting basic things here in the U.S. Yes, and vice versa. So because of that, now and, and there's been a push in recent year or two, 18 months or so, for all countries how to regionalize the supply chains. So that would limit exposure to, mm-hmm. to, you know, to, to, to another situation like COVID or a war that would disrupt supply chains. Now, whether or not China's going to go after Taiwan, at some point, it's, I think it's his cornerstone policy at some point to get Taiwan back. Mm-hmm. They don't see Taiwan as a separate country, really. They right. see it as a renegade province. A renegade province. It's a province in rebellion. Correct. And they've seen that since Chiang Kai-shek went there in, mm-hmm. I think it was 49, mm-hmm. you know, and they've wanted it back since then. Now, up until maybe the last 10 years or so, China was a lot of bluster, but they weren't going to do anything about it. China's actually in a position to do something about it now. And they've been training about this, and they've been, you know, exercise that they've done have been in the South China Sea, and it's been amphibious assaults on some random island and stuff like that. On the flip side, though, Taiwan is an armed camp. It's a fortress. At yes. This point. So even with even if, if the PLA went full court press on Taiwan, it would be a bloody slog to try to get this mm-hmm. island. Mm-hmm. So the question now becomes, is it worth it, number one? Number two— you know, Z is watching what's going on in Europe right now. He sees the whole world sanctioning the hell out of Russia. Mm-hmm. And he's like, if that happens to me, they, they, you know, China relies on trade at this point. And everything they make gets exported pretty much. So if they can't export anything, they can't, it's going to be a bad deal. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a question of the people aren't going to be, are going to be, have, have trouble, you know, trouble economically. The deal, the social compact in China is fine. You won't have political freedoms, but you can make as much money as you want. You know, right. that's what the Chinese, and the Chinese people are good with that. You know, that's mm-hmm. why Shanghai is a flourishing city. That's why yeah. Beijing is flourishing, Macau, all these places. If the money goes away, now you got a poor country with no political freedom. So the Chinese people will be like, eh, this is the deal we had. So mm-hmm. it's going to be a bad, it's going to be, it's going to end up badly for the Chinese Communist Party. So they're going to be yeah. very measured in how they do this, uh, do this thing. Either find a way to isolate their economy to such a point, almost like a Juche North Korea situation, which would be almost impossible to do with a situation, with a country like China. These will take decades for them mm-hmm. to get there. Or say, you know what? The hell with it. Let's roll the dice and see what happens. <laughs> 50-50, I think you're the one to be honest with you. Yeah. So. I think I think you're probably right on the on the Taiwan side of this. What what's Taipei saying about the possibility of a Chinese invasion? I mean, they've always been on a hair trigger, watching for the Chinese. Um, it, are they doing anything different right now that would that would indicate that they're worried about some sort of a military action? They're beefing up everything they can right now. They are more worried than they ever have been, and I don't know how much what to what degree of magnitude that worry has increased, but they see it right now as an actual possible threat. In the past, they were also saying, like, ah, U.S. Got our back, has our back. But, but the, what have the Taiwanese have seen recently? They've seen Afghanistan, where the U.S. Mm-hmm. Ah, Taliban aren't coming here. Oh, whoops. Right. You know, in a few cases like that. So the Taiwanese are like, well, crap. <laughs> right. <laughs> Do we, uh, mm-hmm. should, I, should I be worried about this or not? You know, so they're beefing up what they can. And granted, the U.S., is, you know, they did some exercises uh, as a month or two ago, uh, mm-hmm. similar to what the Chinese have been doing, how to defend an amphibious assault from a random fictional right. island. Uh, in, in, in East Asia. So the U.S. is doing their, their, their at least their, their part of it, the show, at least of it. Um, Taiwan will defend itself to the death. That's not a question. The question is now, can it rely on the U.S.? And I think in the back of its mind, it's like, sure, I'd like to, but let's no. prepare just in case. Yeah, can. they can't, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Michelle lived in Taiwan for a while. Mm-hmm. What, what is the attitude there? They can't, they can't trust the U.S. I mean, the U.S. talks a great game, but I can't when imagine I there, a scenario I where— I mean, when I was there, there wasn't a real— uh, there wasn't any sense that the, uh, that this conflict was going to become military ever, right? Okay. And there is actually a lot of 
cooperation between China and Taiwan. Really? You know, people go back and forth. Yeah. I mean, there is there is some level of cooperation between China and Taiwan. There are people in Taiwan who advocate for closer relationship with China. There are people who, you know, see China as a terrible enemy we should have no relationship with. Um, but, it, you know, it, there wasn't a—it's not an on-the-ground uh, issue, right? It, at least at that time, right? It's not a sort of kitchen table thing. It's irritating when you can't wear you you know you can't wear a Taiwan flag when you represent your country at international mm-hmm. athletic competitions or whatever. You know they're irritated at China blocking their participation in multinational organizations. But you know beyond that, the, there wasn't a whole lot. They're, but, they're happy with the status quo. Yeah, I mean, it depends on who you talk to, right? And the thing is, it depends on where you are. It depends on who you talk to. It depends on the the um, and and who the interlocutor is, right? Mm-hmm. I'm an American coming from the West. I didn't speak Chinese all that well, and most of my friends were, you know, Chinese people who spoke English pretty well. So right. there's a definite Western uh, tilt mm-hmm. uh, to to that. But also, um, yeah, there also just wasn't a sense that th- there wasn't any sense that. Taiwan's military defense would also be up too much. And maybe that has changed mm, a little bit. Changed in the last but while. yeah, That's, yeah, there was just yeah. a sort of like the equipment that they had was not great. Their army is not very big. You know what I mean? Like uh, every time they have an exercise, somebody's plane crashes into an, uh, the ocean. Like it just uh, wasn't, not that there wasn't a will for sure, but that the capability was pretty, uh, oh, interesting. wasn't great. But right. this was more than a decade ago. Right. Well, in, in that decade, things have beefed up for both the Chinese side and the Taiwanese side. It's from from where? Mm-hmm. Are they purchasing American uh, purchasing hardware? American hardware. They're making their own. They can do a bunch, do whatever they can get their hands on. Mm-hmm. The Chinese are, are everything is in-house. And, you know, right. the Chinese in the, in the past, you know, a war with China up until 2000 was not going to, was unthinkable because the Chinese themselves, while they had the numbers in the PLA, mm-hmm. the biggest problem was supply lines. Mm-hmm. They can get troops a thousand miles to the line. But the bullets are three weeks behind, mm-hmm. which does nobody any good. Mm-hmm. They solved that problem, the Chinese. So now they have a blue—they're they're, they're about to have a very significant blue-water navy. They've got a pretty good air force. They've, they've got a very modernized and trained army force. They're good to go. So Taiwan had no other choice but to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. So as much as they can. Now, granted, we're talking order of magnitude, you know, a big difference. Yes, this of, is of a whatever. small, small place. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about Taiwan's like, what, inside of Massachusetts maybe? I don't even know. Yeah. Like, it's not it's, that big. It's little. Yeah. So oh. it's, it'll, be, it'll be, you know— the Chinese will work for it. They will take over Taiwan if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. It won't be easy though. Mm-hmm. It'll be very much a Russia-Ukraine situation. Right. Where it won't be a kick. It won't be. It'll, you know, it'll be a slog. But they will eventually get there. The question now has become what 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 domino effect to start now? Yeah, exactly. So the Chinese invade Taiwan. All right. So the U.S. now are we just are we just arming the Taiwanese? Right. Are we doing like we're doing in Ukraine right now, or are we actually face to face actually fighting Chinese people? Right. And if that happens now, if the U.S. army and the military and Chinese army are facing up, is the Russians going to get involved? Probably not, because they're getting beaten up in Ukraine right now. they got bigger problems. Mm-hmm. But will Kim Jong-un run over South Korea? Well, now we've got two guarantees in the U.S. that we've got to protect Taiwan and South Korea. Mm-hmm. And they both got nukes. Yes. You know, <laughs> it's a bad scene. So it's— Right. I don't know. I, I guess uh, Xi Jinping could, could weigh that as well, but there's a lot to this. It's not just simple cut and dry. I also think that there's no—you know, nobody wants— it, uh, 
nobody wants bloodshed. You know no, what I mean? Like not. again, you person wants that. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. you're also ta- you're talking about people who really genuine like are. I mean, uh, Taiwan has a whole Aboriginal population, which is a different matter. But like these really are, uh, you know, t- China doesn't want a sort of a pile of smoking rubble. Of you know what I mean? Yeah. Or to to kill a bunch of people that it considers also its citizens. And and Taiwan also doesn't want that. So yeah, what you would be setting up is just a sort of protracted guerrilla warfare exactly. in the mountains that are so volatile and and difficult there's only like two roads that go across this tiny island because there's constant earthquakes been. and these right. rugged mountains that you can't get through right. which would be very useful for the United States if you don't care about Taiwanese people dying and Chinese people dying but is mm-hmm. i think really not an outcome that that either side wants even though we sort of present China as like on the brink of invasion constantly who wants that no, nobody wants that. Yeah. And China knows that historically a guerrilla war in the mountains always favors the uh, the local population. Mm-hmm. You know, hell, the Taliban, the Taliban took out with, 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 with the Greek expression, with, with, with sandals and, and rags, yeah. took down the United States, yeah. essentially. Where? Because they had a guerrilla war in the mountains. Yeah. And it's it's what it is. And the U.S. Greeks soldiers would have had the same way. fewer it's... compunctions about killing civilians. That You know what I mean? Like, yeah. this also comes with the, you know, increased compunction about killing civilians when mm-hmm. you perceive them as your sort of brothers. Absolutely. Right. right? Which is un- unfortunate, but I think real. One last question. I can't let you go without asking you about what's happening in the Aegean. Yeah, what's happening in the Aegean? Is um, Erdogan's going for elections? Uh, yes, 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 yes. We've got elections yeah. in a year. We've got Turkey that's in an economic dire strait. And yeah, he's they're having trying a to tough distract time. There, inflation's like 75% the other day. Yep. There's something absurd going on in Turkey right now. Yeah, You've got 20% of the population that falls, that's, that's Gen Z, that you're just getting the right mm-hmm. to vote. And they're like, well, hold on, because my, my counterparts in France are, are, you know, got like all kinds of cool stuff. And yes. we're barely making food here. Right. So I'm not going to vote for, for you, Erdogan, anymore. So he's trying to distract people. Uh-huh. So he's trying to, you know, he's, he's saber rattling with, with Greece a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Greece is kind of like... What are you doing? Yeah, what? Right what's going on now? Yeah. We got the summer tourist season right now. Are you stupid? We both need this money. <laughs> like, what's going yes. on right now? <laughs> so it's, I don't think it'll be, a, I don't think it'll go to the blows there. But um, I think Erdogan is just trying to unite people and distract them from a bad economy and an election that pollsters think he might actually lose next year. You know, I saw that for the very first time two or three days ago. Uh, because in my mind, Erdogan is the is the dictator of Turkey. He's yeah. not the president of Turkey. Right. We, we, call him the president to be nice mm-hmm. um if he doesn't like you or thinks that that you are uh, a potential political threat then you get 20 to life for uh for sedition absolutely uh, that's why he wiped out the country's military leadership mm-hmm. they're all in prison yeah uh, everybody else has fled mm-hmm. uh but there are these young people that he just didn't account for right and there's an entire generation now that has only lived under Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Right. And they don't really like doing this anymore. No, they're kind of done. Mm-hmm. They're kind of done with living like this. You mm-hmm. know, and 10 years ago, they might have been, you know, they were younger 10 years ago, of course, but 10 years ago, their parents weren't struggling. Their parents weren't sitting in the living room thinking, how the hell are we going to make the rent this month? Mm-hmm. How are we going to find food? Because that's what that's the situation in Turkey right yes. now. It's bad. And they're seeing this. Yes. You know, and they're like, this can't go on. No. And I'm seeing our friend, you know, my counter even as close as Greece next door or in Israel or, you know, in countries, in regional countries that. Yeah. They're doing fine. What's our deal here? Look at the Turks who have gone to Germany over the years. I mean, they essentially run the German economy. Absolutely. They're, They're all successful businessmen. Working and, smart, industrious people. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's what it is. And because, you know, Erdogan has this, this, this economic idea that has this idea that economically he's apparently an economist, which mm-hmm. I don't believe he is. But he's, 
uh, you know, he's he's personally shapes economic and fiscal policy in mm-hmm. Turkey, which explains why they have something. It's a disaster right now. It's a complete mm-hmm. disaster. You know, the the Turkish lira, I think, was 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 worth less than than rocks a few months yeah. ago. Like it was absurd what's going on there. But he thinks he's running the course. Zero interest rates. We have seventy five percent inflation. Uh, you know, he's doing the wrong thing with interest rates. Doing the wrong thing with monetary policy. But hey, you know. It's going to be interesting to watch. It will be. We were happy to be joined here in the studio by Tony Alexiou. Tony is a principal at the Minotaur Group in Washington, D.C. It's a D.C. consulting firm that specializes in geopolitical risk and homeland security consultancy. Thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot, guys. Really appreciate it. Always a fun time here. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned, and we'll be right back. and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. And as promised, we're going to talk a little bit more about Boris Johnson's uh, final exit maybe coming <laughs> down the line. Also, a bit of trivia. Apparently, so, you know, the the Yakety Sax has been playing behind uh, interviews with Tory ministers as they try, try to explain what's going on. Uh, apparently, that was at the request of Hugh Grant. Hugh Grant, like, tweeted... <laughs> Hey, somebody should be playing. Somebody should play, be playing the the Benny Hill theme in, in, at Ten Downing Street while they try to explain these things. And so that's why this oh is what the internet God. has told me just now. So <laughs> thought that was exciting. Um, so yes, Boris Johnson's number appears to finally be up after a wave of resignations from ministers and pressure from members of his cabinet. He has finally announced that he will resign, but not immediately. That was the last I saw, uh, only after a successor is found. And so here to talk to us about what's going on in the UK and also to talk about some interesting energy moves in France is Dr. Kenneth Surin. He's a political and foreign affairs analyst and a professor emeritus of literature and a professor of religion and critical theory at Duke University. Dr. Surin, thanks for joining us again. You're welcome. So all the headlines uh, have it that this was about Boris Johnson's dishonesty. And the Guardian had a sort of, I, I think this is a little bit, breathless. Uh, His toxic spell is broken. Okay. Uh, But the conclusion seems to be that really this this comes back to Partygate, right? And his government just could not take another lie. And Boris Johnson couldn't stop personally dissembling. And I wonder if if you think that's what happened. And if, you know, maybe we should be relieved that at least somewhere a political party will ultimately not tolerate blatant dishonesty from its leadership forever. Well, um, I think there are several caveats that have to be attached to. Mm -hmm. Um, The first is this, that tolerate uh, someone like Boris Johnson. Well, they're looking after their own Mm -hmm. self-interest because he's lost four by-elections in a row. uh, And some of these have had pumping Tory majorities. So Tory MPs are looking over their shoulders and wondering if they're going to survive the next general election. 
Mm-hmm. And also, there is a convergence of factors around Partygate, which, as you rightly pointed out, is the tip of the iceberg. Um, there is a cost of living crisis, uh, the most uh, serious one since the 1970s. Inflation is at a 40 year high. Um, Brexit is not really working out according to, uh, well, the blatant lies that were put up, put out by Boris Johnson and his supporters mm-hmm. when they campaigned for it. Um, and then the National Health Service is in a deep crisis. Uh, COVID is meant to be over, uh, but is now at its highest level since February. Mm-hmm. So all of these factors taken together convey the impression of a generalized malaise. Mm. And um, the the straw that broke the back was his latest lie uh, over the uh, appointment as deputy whip of his close ally, Chris Pincher. Chris Pincher has long had a reputation uh, for groping men when he is drunk. Mm. And um, Boris Johnson said that when he appointed Pincher, uh, he had never been informed about these allegations. Right. Well, the civil servant who uh, was connected with the vetting process came out. Uh, he's retired now and said this was a flat-out lie. Uh, Boris Johnson had been uh, informed about these allegations. And... Um, Boris Johnson had no foot to stand on uh, as a a result of this. Mm -hmm. So the trap door was opened, and uh, uh, he seems to have gone down it, though, as you point out, um, he intends to stay on um, until the leadership uh, election for his successor Mm -hmm. is completed. I have to say, it makes much more sense that the Tories finally decided they couldn't take Johnson anymore because they thought, you know, he he wasn't going to safeguard their political futures rather than all of this stuff about how, like, it was, well, they couldn't take his lying. It was one lie, two, of course they could, right? If he, if he had shown that he was going to continue to be a winner, you know, but once you're not a winner, then they, then suddenly all of your flaws are, uh, are actual flaws. So what is this leadership fight going to look like? And, you know, as we pointed out when when the, the resignations really started flowing yesterday, we're not talking about a general election here, right? It's still going to be the conservatives in charge in the UK. And so I wonder, honestly, how much how much a, a change of leadership will really matter in the UK and in terms of its foreign policy? Um, well, you see, this is an open question. Mm. Um, I think what we're going to get is someone who will be uh, pro-Brexit, anti-EU, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, this person will not carry the the baggage, uh, the boosterism, um, the the court jester act, et cetera, et cetera, Mm -hmm. that has been associated with Boris Johnson. Um, I don't foresee much change in Tory government policy. 
Yeah, and I want, if, I mean, Preeti Patel, who's, I think people would not be, you know, foes of Boris Johnson would not be uh, happy to see her take power. But ultimately, it's sort of a, it seems like a lot of personal drama. There is some uh, exciting news coming out of Europe today uh, that I wanted to ask you about. France yesterday said that it was going to fully nationalize the power company EDF. And of course, it already owns I think I saw 84% of shares of the company. So so maybe just getting to 100% isn't a huge move. But to me, to see a government doing this in the name of managing its transition away from fossil fuels, you know, if you are someone who thinks that steps like these are going to be necessary, if we want to move away from short-term profits being the only driver of policy to long-term energy strategies, I think uh, it seems like it could be, you know, very positive. And so, so I wonder how significant you think this is. Well, as you point out, it's not really uh, significant uh, in ownership terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, France's energy policy, uh, unlike the rest of Europe, is predicated on nuclear power. Mm-hmm. Uh, so does this signal a move away from nuclear power? Um, I doubt it. Mm-hmm. I think what's likely to have a greater impact is uh, the fact that EDF is the fourth largest provider of household energy in the United Kingdom. It's currently constructing a new power station in the UK uh, for the UK government. So what I think is, is likely to happen, uh, there will be proponents uh, of renationalization of English utilities who are now going to say to the Tories, who of course are completely in favor of privatization, to say, look, the French government itself, uh, with the neoliberal Macron at its helm, uh, is now going in for state ownership. Mm-hmm. And um, so don't you think it's time that we did something similar in the United Kingdom and renationalize all of these enterprises that have been privatized by the Tories since Mrs. Thatcher? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that I'm looking to see how that plays out in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The utilities have been price gouging. Uh, there's clear evidence that this has been happening in recent years, stuffing the pockets of their shareholders mm-hmm. uh, and the top tier of management with bonuses, uh, exorbitant bonuses, etc., completely ignoring regulations on health and safety, especially where water and sewage are concerned. Uh, the United Kingdom has some of the dirtiest rivers uh, in Europe um, because really they have not been brought to book um, when they do such a thing as dumping um, raw sewage uh, into what used to be pristine rivers. Uh. So I think the, I, I look to see what the impact of this uh, full nationalization of EDF uh, how it will play out in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. France, I think people will just say, well, you know, this is a logical step. You own 84% of the uh, company. Why not go the whole hog and take the whole thing over? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
But to say, you know, to provide as justification for it that, you know, we we are going to have to manage this transition from the top. I feel like that's significant. And if it's, you know, if it's the beginning of, of changes, as you say, in the, in the UK, I think that would be a very good thing for people who have been being price gouged through this sort of American private utilities model for for too long. I also wanted to talk about some political moves in Ukraine and uh, what response, if any, we might see from the European Union. A court decision earlier this week sealed the fate of the Communist Party of Ukraine. It had originally been banned by the government in 2015 on charges of promoting separatism, uh, which some reports say meant advocating for a peaceful settlement of the civil war in the Donbass. Um, In 2015, though, Ukraine also banned the display of Soviet symbols and the use of the word communist. And of course, people associated with this party are also being called pro-Russian, including, I believe, a former finance minister who is associated with it. Uh, And so, you know, there are there are allegations that it is treasonous. Um, But. You know, when this first happened in 2015, and of course, this final decision is the the end of a legal process that began then. In 2015, Amnesty International decried the ban as an attempt to stifle dissent, uh, said the move was propelling Ukraine backward and not forward on its path to reform and greater respect for human rights. Uh, And now I've seen a, a single member of the European Parliament, a member of the Communist Party of Greece, who served since 2014 on the, in the European Parliament. Um, I saw him at least ask a question of the vice president of the European Commission, uh, what view he takes of this decision to ban the party and to criminalize a communist ideology and, and what measures he plans to take to address it. But of course, in his question, he notes what he describes as the official anti-communist stance of the EU, which he says has facilitated similar bans in other EU nations. And so I wonder, you know, I wonder what you think we have here, right? Whether the EU will take any notice of this ban that at least a few years ago, human rights groups found unacceptable. Um, but now, you know, it is not uh, not a politically simpatico, I guess, to to talk about a crackdown on on civil liberties in Ukraine. And also, if the EU were to take any notice of this, would they be hypocrites since uh, anti-communism seems to be sort of part of their whole uh, ideology? Well, of course, this whole thing reeks of hypocrisy. Um, I, the, the, the EU's position is the same as uh, uh, the Western... Uh, all of the Western powers, Ukraine can do no wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll turn a blind eye uh, to whatever happens internally in the Ukraine, uh, even if it is profoundly anti-democratic, mm-hmm. as this recent move is. And of course, you're right. Uh, the EU uh, has amongst its members uh, countries that have bowed the Communist Party. I, Latvia and Lithuania come to mind immediately. Mm-hmm. And the EU has done absolutely nothing about them. So I think uh, what will follow is entirely predictable. Uh, a blind, Two blind eyes will be turned towards Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sort of in, in this instance, a a suppression of uh, political expression and civil liberties in Ukraine is actually in line with EU policies. And so in this one instance, perhaps they're not as hypocritical as they might be to, to ignore it. Well, uh, 
it's in line with that policy, but, you know, uh, policies are twisted and turned as a matter of convenience. Uh, this one will be twisted and turned. Mm. Uh, so I don't think much is going to happen. Yeah. Uh, the, Greek, the Greek MEP was uh, literally a voice crying in the wilderness. Yes. At least we've got one. That was Dr. Kenneth Surin. He's a political and foreign affairs analyst. He's a professor at Duke University. Dr. Surin, thanks as always for joining us. Uh, you're welcome. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come back with some last uh, headlines, including a story that really caught me by surprise. So stay tuned. We're here on uh, Radio Sputnik. We are live in D.C. and We'll talk to you in just a sec. Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. James Kahn. Oh, I feel so bad. R.I.P. James Kahn died 82 years old. Yeah. Most I mean. famous for playing Sonny Corleone in The Godfather. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great actor. Yeah. His son's a terrific actor. Who's his son? Um, he was on um, the reboot of Hawaii Five-0. Mr. Kahn Jr. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Cool. I forget. Yes. Also great in misery. Yes. Of course, tribute. Oh my God. He was great in, in misery. Uh-huh. That's a great. Kathy Bates won an Oscar for that. Kathy Bates is a treasure. Um, there's a story that I, you know who I had, I had seen a lot of um, tweets about this from people who are big supporters of the Canadian protest movement that yes. blockaded the Capitol mm-hmm. for quite some time. Um, but I hadn't really followed it anywhere. But there's been uh, Dutch farmers protesting um, what I understand to be plans to cut nitrogen emissions. And on Tuesday evening, they have been uh, blockading supermarkets and uh, blocking streets. And police actually fired at them. What? Last night. Yeah. Police said they were responding to a threatening situation as farmers were trying to push a tractor past a blockade to get onto a highway. Uh, the police say they they fired at the tractor. They fired warning shots. No one was hurt. Uh, they fired a tractor that broke free of a line. Uh, police were saying they were trying to drive in. Tractor drivers were trying to drive into them. But Good so now, grief. of course, there is a there's going to be an inquiry. Um, But I guess the government has proposed cutting emissions of pollutants like nitrogen oxide, which is a major farm pollutant, Mm -hmm. by 50 percent by 2030, which is a pretty quick timeline. Yeah, it is. Sounds like to me a total novice on this topic, but cutting something by 50 percent in that period of time seems like a lot. And apparently these farmers also think it is going to be too burdensome for them. So, yeah. you know. the uh, you just said a second ago about the uh, Canadian protests. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the the of course you do the American side of those protests oh, where yeah. the truckers came to Washington yeah. Yeah, trying yeah. to block it off? They came back. Oh, really? Yeah. They came back last weekend. Wow. Uh, there was a piece in the Washington Post saying that they decided they're going to give this another go. And um, 
they tried to block the highway, the Capitol Beltway, on July 4th, not realizing that everybody's on vacation July 4th, mm-hmm. and there was no traffic to block. Mm-hmm. And so it didn't work. And then they came back on the 5th to try to block traffic, but traffic is so heavy normally on the Capitol Beltway that they got stuck in traffic on the way to the Beltway to block the traffic, and they decided to just all drive back to their homes again. May all of my enemies sit on the Beltway forever. (laughs) Not that these people are my enemies. A story I forgot to mention yesterday, and really, I don't want to let slide past, John, because it's very important is that in Japan, at an aquarium, because of inflation pressures, Uh they have been forced to give their penguins and otters, and I imagine other fish eaters, cheaper fish. Uh And you can watch videos of these animals Uh turning their heads away from the the fish. fish as it's being offered by aquarium staff or like taking one in its mouth in the case of an otter and then spitting it out. <laughs> Which I love. It's so great. It's very funny to see these penguins with their beaks in the air already because they're all little snobs. Um, yeah. Just turning, refusing, waiting for, waiting for the good fish that they know <laughs> they've got and they're just holding out on them back in their whatever human cave they live in. <laughs> Behind those glass doors. Yeah, it's pretty great. My dog has definitely done this to me a few times where I, I, I try to hand her a treat and she just nudges it with her nose. Oh, yeah. My my housemates have a chihuahua and he does the same thing. It's pretty. I mean, it's pretty cute if you're in the right mood. Um, also, did we talk about uh, did we talk about James Comey and uh, Andrew McCabe getting audited by no, the IRS? No, but this is a big story. Mm-hmm. You know, after I blew the whistle on the torture program, I was audited every single year from 2007 to 2015. I think this was an aspect of the case of the fellow who it was a Supreme Court case. I think it was Egbert versus Boulay. That's right. He said in addition, you know, you roughed me up, whatever else, yeah. and also I was audited, yeah. and I, you know, link that to this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't. I guess the Supreme Court. Yeah. They, they said they stick the IRS on you. Yeah, it seems to be. And, and that's what Donald Trump did to these guys. That's what they that's what is being suggested anyway. And so I guess they are now um, the post is saying he's he's facing an onslaught of questions. The uh, commissioner right. of the IR, IRS, whether he will actually be. Did I just say did I say IRA before? Uh-huh. Not the Irish Republicans, not them. <laughs> uh, the, I guess, you know, there are suggestions that he might be asked some some questions about it. It also seems like uh, in their investigation of Comey, they just found that he was owed a little bit more of a refund. <laughs> no, I mean, whatever. I, I'm I'm over the James Comey straight arrow. He's, yeah, he's a shiny red it. apple of a human no, being. Mystique, sorry. get out of here with that. Not interested. But, you know that is that is pretty funny. Not interested. I noticed that you put in here uh, about the uh, the jury that found this. Guy who's unfortunately named Eric Holder Jr. That's the Jr. only reason I put it in there because I saw the headline: Eric Holder Jr. convicted of killing Nipsey Hussle, and I was like, "What? What is this?" I have to tell you, it's not Eric Holder Jr., the son of Eric Holder, the Obama Attorney I have to General. Change that, but I did also love it. Well, you know, though, he has a son who's named Eric Holder. Oh, good grief! But I believe, and this is according to internet research from this morning, I think Eric Holder, former Attorney General is a junior and his son is a third. Okay. So I think, and I, but I think this guy is an Eric Holder. He's a, he's a junior. Junior. Yes. I I wanted to tell you that when Nipsey Hussle was killed, I happened to be walking past 
the TV mm-hmm. and they had this breaking news, Nip- Nipsey Hussle killed in a shooting in Los Angeles. I was doing the show with Brian Becker at the time, loud and clear. Mm-hmm. And I said to Brian, cause I only saw it for a second on the screen. I said, Brian, uh, somebody killed Nipsey Russell. And he goes, somebody killed Nipsey Russell. I said, honest to God, I didn't even know he was still alive. Oh no! The guy must be a hundred years old. Oh no. And he said, who would want to kill Nipsey Russell? No and one, then I looked and he's, I said, no, it's Nipsey Hussle. He said, who's that? I said, I don't have the foggiest idea. Beautiful. <laughs> Absolutely beautiful. Uh, political news coming up here. We've got, uh, well, <laughs> big news about Trump. Uh, I didn't know that Trump had left the board of Truth Social. I think he was kind of forced to leave the board because well, he's got so much trouble. Now, the Herald Tribune says he removed himself from the board of the social media company just weeks before it was issued federal subpoenas by the SEC and uh, the Manhattan Grand Jury. So okay. he was one of six board members removed on June 8th. So okay. did he do that to sort of separate himself deliberately? Did they do that to separate himself? A lot of people are going to go down hard. Yeah. Hey, did you happen to see the article in um, the Washington Post today about the Chagall watercolor? No. There's a woman in New York, quite well-to-do woman, who in 1994 bought a Chagall watercolor mm-hmm. uh, for her bedroom. She bought it at Sotheby's. Some people she paid, live well. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, she bought it at Sotheby's, and she paid $90,000 for it. Ten years later, it was... Um, appraised at $100,000. And her husband has since passed away. She took it off the wall, moved into a smaller place, put it in storage, and then Sotheby's reached out to her and said, hey, you may want to sell your your Chagall because the price has gone up. We think we could get $175,000 for it. Mm -hmm. And she said, okay, well, it's in storage. I'm going to just sell it. And they said, okay, we're going to send it to the Chagall Foundation. They uh, do a report on it, and then they'll send it back, and we'll uh, we'll put it for sale. Mm -hmm. So they send it to the Chagall Foundation in Paris, and they say, oh, it's a fake. It's a fake, and French law says whenever we discover a fake, we have to burn it. What? Uh Uh-huh. Oh, no. And she's like, whoa, wait a minute. I got this at Sotheby's, and they guaranteed that it was an authentic Chagall, and there was provenance attached to it where it had been in two separate galleries in Paris before that, Mm -hmm. and it signed Chagall and everything. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, is that the Chagall Foundation's authentication committee is chaired by Chagall's daughter. And she knows his work better than anybody else on the planet. And she said what somebody did was they took elements of three different Chagall paintings and put them onto one canvas Mm. and said, oh, here's an original Chagall. And then they copied his signature. So now she's suing. She can't sue the Chagall Foundation because they are airtight under French law. But she's suing Sotheby's. And Sotheby's said, well, it was in good faith. We thought it was real in in 94. So they're offering her... the 25% fee that she paid when she bought it for 90000 in 1994. And she's like, no, I want $175,000, which is what you told me it was worth. And you sold me a fake. Yeah, I mean, I'm on Team team Rich Lady for this one. I am too. I'm with her. I, I, yeah, shame I support that. that. Also, shame to... Eh, it's, a, it's a beautiful object, right? It seems a shame to, to destroy beautiful. a beautiful object. Whoever yeah. painted it, right? Somebody, right? somebody made it. I agree. I'd, I'd have that in my bedroom. It's beautiful. Yeah. It really is. I you should care. see it. It could be painted by Mark Siegel. That'd be fine. <laughs> 
All right. That's all we have for you folks today. Uh, We're going to be back tomorrow. I want to say thanks to all of our guests as usual and the producers and engineers that make this show possible. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.